The next case was presented to Dr. Huddis and Budman by Dr. Patricia Steinecker. This is a 60-year-old female who had been on Premarin for 20 years and was found to have an abnormal screening mammogram and underwent right breast lumpectomy with sentinel lymph node biopsy for a grade 1 infiltrating ductal carcinoma measuring 1.2 centimeters in size with 0 of 5 positive lymph nodes. Two were sentinel lymph nodes and three additional negative lymph nodes were in the specimen. The tumor was strongly estrogen and progesterone receptor positive, both greater than 90%, and was HER2 negative by fish assay. And can you just comment on a little bit more about this woman as a person? She was 60 years old, had a grandchild that she was babysitting for full-time. She had gone through high school education and had not worked after early years before her children. She did have a previous CAT scan when I was reviewing all her data that showed that at one time she went to the ER for abdominal pain. They did a CAT scan of the chest, and she had a pericardial effusion that was caught just on the CAT scan of the abdomen that was done. And that had been a few years earlier, but had no complaints or anything. And I guess one of the issues here is going to be the question of chemotherapy as well as hormonal therapy. Did she have any thoughts about the chemotherapy? And what was your assessment in terms of how chemotherapy would sit with her lifestyle? Well, she actually came with the impression that she would get chemotherapy. And she was sent knowing that she'd probably get chemotherapy and also get hormone therapy. So she was not adverse to that situation. Now, do you use the adjuvant online model in your practice? I do routinely. And you did it in her? I did. What did you come up with? Her risk of relapse at 10 years was calculated at 18%. Okay. I will say that at some conference that I went to one time, somebody was saying, think of it as 1% per millimeter of tumor. And so I actually, in my mind, was thinking it was going to be closer to 12%, to be honest. But the online site got 18%. So, Cliff, can you talk about how you would think through this case and whether or not you'd be thinking about an archetype in this patient? This is a 1.2 centimeter tumor. The reason that the adjuvant online gets you that higher estimate is that it lumps together a 1.2 and a 1.9 centimeter tumor. So this is a classic example. I think your estimate's probably closer to right than wrong. So my thinking on these kinds of cases has changed over the last few years. Historically, after the 1990, I know it's 17 years ago, after the 1990 consensus conference based on Peter Rosen's data and the NSABP data, as well as the then published node negative trials, remember there were four in the New England Journal that 1989, I used to routinely recommend chemotherapy for healthy women at tumor sizes of one centimeter or above. And that was that. I did too. Right. And so in the last few years, a couple of things have come into play for me. The first is, I'm not sure we're wrong because the falling death rate from breast cancer over the last 17 years has been pretty constant, and I don't know what it's caused by, but it's impossible to exclude broad use of chemotherapy as one of the contributing factors. So I'm not so excited about necessarily giving less chemo. On the other hand, we have this data now both from the oncotype experience and from some other settings that suggest that there are essentially subsets of ER-positive tumors that do and don't benefit from chemotherapy. And I would generally talk to this patient. If she walked in and said, I am here because I want chemotherapy, I wouldn't talk her out of it, quite frankly. If she was on the fence, I would certainly encourage her to enroll in TaylorRx. And in fact, in all cases, I probably would. And if she was reluctant to get chemo, I would for sure think about the Oncotype DX because the one thing I wouldn't want to miss is the high score that would convince her to get what I think she probably should be getting anyway. Let's talk a little bit also about the issue of hormonal therapy in this patient potentially. Dan, can you talk about sort of how you're approaching a typical postmenopausal patient in this kind of a situation? 
Again, I think this is an evolution, and now that we recognize these diseases are heterogeneous and that a grade 1 ERPR-positive patient is surely very different than the patients we discussed previously, hormonal therapy is paramount. And what we have, again, over the last five years or so is the advent of these studies showing that aromatase inhibitors in virtually any concoction one wants to use in the adjuvant setting offers an advantage so that the primary kick in this lady I believe would be using an aromatase inhibitor and perhaps doing an Oncotype DX and trying to talk her out of chemotherapy because she's probably the subgroup that we will know in the next two or three years who doesn't really get any benefit. One of the problems with the overview analysis and everything else is we lump everything together. How do you go about selecting an aromatase inhibitor when you're going to use it up front, Dan? They basically work the same. Their steroidal ones are probably a little more toxic because they have a little more androgenic effects. I think to some degree, as far as efficacy, is going to turn out to be dealer's choice, but we don't have prospective data yet. That data is the MA27 is still pending for extramestine versus anastrozole. I usually will pick the drug of choice based upon the toxicity data. We have the longest follow-up with anastrozole. One of the concerns we have with all these patients is that although we'd like to feel we're very smart, our medical practices have very little influence on this disease, and therefore we don't want to hurt patients. So I would pick anastrozole based on the ATAC trial and the long follow-up. Cliff, where are we right now in the differential efficacy and side effects of the three aromatase inhibitors, particularly as it relates to cardiovascular disease? There was some discussion a year or two ago about that issue. I haven't seen too much about it lately. When the Big 198 was first presented at St. Gallen, there was a whole lot of excitement about the fact that they had well documented a lack of favorable lipid profile on it. And I say it that way because tamoxifen appeared to lower cholesterol numerically a little bit. So in comparison to tamoxifen, the letrozole looked a bit worse. And along with that, they had a greater number of cardiac events recorded. The ATAC data, as published in the Lancet, the update actually didn't confirm that same observation, but I would draw very few conclusions from any of this. The ascertainment biases in these clinical trials are vast. How rigorously they looked for these, how tightly they recorded them, and so forth. It was all done retrospectively or based on SAEs, and I think until you set out a prospective study, you don't know. Furthermore, I'm not an expert at this at all, but my understanding is that the lipid impact of the drugs is much more complex. It's true that the cholesterol does not go down, but the ratio of HDL, LDL, and the triglycerides is actually affected in some ways that may be favorable or certainly not harmful, even with the AI. So I don't think we can say bupkis about this. So are there postmenopausal patients in whom you're going to use hormonal therapy where you don't use an aromatase inhibitor up front? Well, for a patient who meets the definition of menopause, meaning a year, no periods, and no medical reason for that, I default to using an AI up front. I didn't always, but I do now. On the other hand, especially for the lower-risk cohorts, like this patient, small tumor node negative, where the absolute difference between an AI and tamoxifen is going to be very small, for toxicity, I wouldn't lose any sleep over a switch to tamoxifen. What about choice of aromatase inhibitors up front? I guess I'm sort of like Dan. I go by the evidence. So ATAC has the longest track record up front. I have no doubt that the letrozole result is the same, and I might occasionally use it for no good reason. And in the switch setting, I use mostly anastrozole and exemestane. And in the outback setting, I use letrozole and now a little bit of exemestane based on B33. So can you follow up with the patient? Actually, she elected after discussion with her about what her value with getting chemotherapy would be, she elected to have the Oncotype DX assay done which indicated a recurrence score of 10, with an average rate of distant recurrence at 10 years predicted to be about 7%. 
She therefore agreed to forego chemotherapy and was started on adjuvant Arimidex. And where is she right now? Well, since starting on her adjuvant hormone therapy, the only thing that was different is that she previously had normal tumor markers. And after starting the Arimidex a few months later, her CA15-3 became 41, and CA2729 was 46.3. She has been scanned. She does have a pericardial effusion, which has been stable for many years. I don't know the cause of that, but it's not causing any cardiac compromise. And I've just been following her tumor markers, which are a little bit lower now. One is still in a little bit above normal range. And they did switch places that did the tumor markers at one point, so that might have entered some discrepancy in there. Dan, any comment about the markers? Markers are a headache. (laughs) (laughs) I happen to live in an area in the country that all the women talk to each other and they say, well, my number is so-and-so, and and how come you didn't get this done? So you sit down and say that they're not that reliable. They actually, even in metastatic disease, they may not be up and so on, and they still say, well, I want my markers drawn. There is a spectrum, and it can be up, and it doesn't necessarily have to be up to malignant disease. I have patients who are sure Cliff has the same. Where we scan them, whether it be cat or pet, can't find anything. One lady was sort of interesting, though, that she did have an increased marker for 10 years, and I talked to Dan Hayes about it because Dan's done a lot of the work, and he didn't really know, and it turned out she had midwifery thyroid, and it was very indolent. So occasionally it does show you things, but... Which marker was that you talk about? For it was CEA. Oh, okay. Or 10 and couldn't find anything, no matter what we did. And she was relatively young. So that occasionally it may be of value, but realistically, I think it's more of a headache than it is of value. Cliff, if this patient's recurrent score had come back high, you know, 30 mm-hmm. to 40, mm-hmm. what chemotherapy would you have likely utilized? I would have used a first-generation type regimen, CMF, or if you're somebody likes AC or TC. I just don't think it matters. The differential among the regimens in the setting is extremely unlikely. So you wouldn't have used a taxane? Probably not. I would have given her CMF. Dan? I put some stock in Don Berry's retrospective review of the CLGB data in more advanced disease, node-positive disease, and that experience, really, for ER-positive patients, there is minimal benefit for the use of ataxane in that setting. We don't have prospective data yet, and there is, again, minimal data for the use in the ER-positives for the dose dense. So I would tend to err using a traditional regimen, either AC, TC is eminently reasonable, Steve Jones' study is a reasonable size study, and then obviously hormonal, if you're going to go the cytotoxic route. Cliff? I would just make one observation about this case. For all the certainty we all had, she was one point away from being randomizable on the Taylor RX. I'm surprised. I thought you were going to tell me recurrence score is three or four. 